Joey, you ever been in a uh, ship's bridge before? Uh, no. And my name's not Joey. And three, is this from Airplane? Is that what you're doing? You like films about gladiators? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Actually, Gladiator is one of my favorite movies ever. Good historical fiction. Very good. Not accurate, but good. In fact, speaking of accurate historical fiction, we've got a guest on the show who's written a number of books that are historical fiction and accurate. You mean like uh, Braveheart? Did I say accurate or inaccurate? There we go. Exactly. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Sons of History podcast. I am Dustin Bass. And I'm Alan Joaquin. And he's a handsome man. And there is no debate, as people like to yell and scream every so often. This is not a debate. And honestly, this is probably the one thing that I don't think is a debate, is you're, you're just handsome. <laughs> Your beauty. Look at yourself. You know, Can you look at yourself? Is there a mirror in here? No, every, there's not. Every minute of every day, I you know, have uh, one in my car when I drive here. I said, I'm not looking at the road. I'm, Is that why you had a wreck last week? Uh, uh, well, that, <laughs> that was not my fault, just in case uh, oh, someone is watching. Yeah, just <laughs> this ever case. goes to trial. <laughs> <laughs> it was not my fault. Well, beautiful. Yeah, definitely not. Um, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't yet... Please go to YouTube if you're watching it on YouTube right now. Click the subscribe button and also click the bell so you'll get an alert for whenever a new video comes up. Also, if you're listening on the podcast, wherever you're listening to, hit the subscribe button. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, do us a huge favor and leave us a rating or a review and or a review actually would be better. Um, And while you're at it, you know, just busy. Go ahead and follow us on Instagram and Facebook, too. That would be absolutely stellar. Tell your tell your family and friends, your grandchildren. Actually, you know what? Let this be people's Christmas present. Yes. Is directing yeah. people to all of our stuff. Yeah. yeah. And it, good videos. You talk about saving money in this economy? Uh, yeah. You know, because... Speaking of bad economies... <laughs> <laughs> Left me speechless. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, speaking of uh, economies, I say this week in history. Yes, it, let's do that. Let's go ahead and uh, jump into all it. All right. I won't leave me speechless. No, not at all. All right. So, this. Were we going to time this? I'm freaking glad you said it. yes. Actually, okay. we need to all make right. sure we're timing it. Huh. Yeah. Let me see. Okay. Oh, there's my official timer. Are you ready? Okay. Two minutes. Okay. Two minutes in history. Okay. Let and my time starts now. Okay. So my This Week in History is December 6th, 1964. Um, this is my, really my all-time favorite movie, Christmas movie. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Claymation. Uh, Burl Ives, one of your favorite uh, individuals. Uh, anyways. Not better than Die Hard. On that day, December 6th, 1964, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Claymation aired for the very first time on television, and it left us just in awe. Ready, Rudolph? Ready, Santa! Now, Billy... Okay. Boy or girl who played Rudolph? Guess. 
Should we be assigning genders this soon? I don't know. Uh, you know, it, Bart Simpson's a girl, so I couldn't even tell you. So, but, and the fact that you even ask that question tells me it's a woman. Exactly. Girl, she, her. Uh, Rudolph the um, Red-Nosed Reindeer was played by Billy Mae Richards. Now, Rudolph a, the Red-Nosed Reindeer was actually created in 1939 by a guy by the name of Robert L. May, who was a catalog writer for Montgomery Ward. Montgomery Ward gave away free books at each Christmas and May decided he would create a book about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, or not the claymation, just the reindeer. Montgomery Ward gave out 2 million copies of the books. And it was 10 years later that Mr. May actually got the rights to the book. He eventually, with his brother-in-law, who's a songwriter, turned the, the story into a song. Gene Autry picked it up. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. It blew up, and then a few years later, about 15 years later, we have Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Claymation, one of my favorites of all time. And it's interesting that this movie actually represents Robert L. May's life. And boom! Look at that. Look at that. Oh, you didn't <laughs> stop it in time. 201. 201, but you know what it was. It was yeah. at the two-minute mark. All right. Wow, right. it. Well, you're gonna have to do you're gonna have to do me on yours. Hey, man, so. I'm oh, don't ever talk like that again. <laughs> All right, are you ready? I am ready. All okay, right. time started. Mine takes place during World War One, December nine through eleven of nineteen seventeen. That was when the British captured Jerusalem, and it was the first time since twelve forty four that Jerusalem was not controlled by an Islamic power. Hmm. That, that was Frederick Frederick II. He was the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick II. So, anyway, um, you know, what's his name? Richard the Lionheart failed in his endeavor to try to capture it. Oh, Richard. All right, so, now, if you watch the movie, uh, uh, what's that, Lawrence of Arabia? Mm -hmm. You had T.E. Lawrence was in there. You had um, Archibald Murray, who was the commander. He failed in two attacks on Gaza. This is in um, uh, the Palestinian areas. Um so Edmund Allenby, who did very well on the Western Front, he comes in, he becomes the commander, he captures Gaza, captures Beersheba. Now UK Prime Minister David Lloyd George says, capture Jerusalem by Christmas. So, you know, they had these offensives, they were near Jerusalem. Now on December the 9th, there was this British cook by the name of Private Murch. He was seeking, trying to find eggs. He was approached by the uh, mayor of Jerusalem on a horse carrying a white flag named Hussein Salim al-Husseini. He said, I want to surrender Jerusalem. The cook was like, uh, let me talk, let me let you talk to my brigadier general by the name of C.F. Watson. C.F. Watson contacted John Shea, who was a divisional uh, major general, who then contacts General Allenby. So Allenby's like, don't do anything, I'll be there. And two days later, he shows up. Now, Allenby, General Allenby was a religious man. He knew that Jesus was supposed to approach on a horse. He showed up on a donkey. And Kaiser Wilhelm II looked like an ass because he showed up a few years earlier on a horse, and they didn't like that. So as he approached the gates to Jerusalem, he dismounted. I've heard, now, you know what? The hell with it. I want to tell my story. General Allenby dismounted. I've, I've read he was on a horse. I read he was in a car. Either way, he got up. 
He, he, he didn't want to ride in on a horse, and he walked through the gates into Jerusalem as the conqueror. And that really made everybody impressed with him. So, um, Fantastic. Yeah, so, yeah, General Allenby and capture, Jerusalem yeah. was captured. And then, you know, the British had it, and then it be, there was a big conflict in 47, 48, 49, yeah. and then 67, Israel captures it. So anyway, well, that happened December 9 yeah. through 11, you 1917. You can never do it. It's such you a shame. Can't, you such a you know, shame. It's, can't do it. Uh, what, what, David Lloyd George, just in case people don't know, he was the Prime Minister of Britain during World War One. So I know you threw that that name out there. Also, if you heard a <sighs> that was not me. That was Madison, uh, my dog. She was she already knew that you weren't gonna be able to make the time. No shut <laughs> up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that is this week in history. All right. Well, without further ado, despite the fact that Alan went way over the two-minute mark, and as General Allenby would have said one day, this is preposterous. I cannot believe that you would even consider doing something is so ridiculously preposterous. How much time did you just spend on that? Uh, watch Lawrence of Arabia. Because um, you can't rush history. But is... we can rush it to the show. Is that a good... I think that's a pretty spot on Allenby. Anyways, all right. So, ladies nope. and gentlemen, we... No, it's not. Not even close? No. That How J- did he Jack talk? Hawkins does... How the, did he talk? You know, I, I can't do... Give me something. No, um, you're undisciplined. You're... In a I British remember accent. that. Yeah. Wow, that's trash. Yeah. Anyways, it I'm sounded a, a lot like your current I'm not accent. an actor. All right. So, we've got James Haley, the distinguished... James Haley, who is going to be joining us momentarily, he has won twice the Western Writers of America Spur Award and the Texas Historical Commission T.R. Fehrenbach Book Award. Along with that, he's a member of the Texas Institute of Fellows. Uh, No, he's not. An Institute of Letters and a fellow of the Texas State Historical Society. He's the author of more than 20 books including biographies on Jack London and Sam Houston, which won nine awards. And he's also done histories on Texas, Hawaii, the Texas Supreme Court, and the Apaches. And his latest works, Doctor, his latest works are the historical fiction naval series called the Putnam Series. Uh, He recently put together the fourth installment, which we're going to be talking about, entitled Catton, Catton. (laughs) Man, I am really struggling. You know why? Because I'm doing all the talking, and I, I, I hate it. And I'm pretty sure all of our listeners are tired of hearing my voice. Captain Putnam for the Republic of Texas. Oh, you're better at this Gosh, than I am. Gosh, I got yeah. it. Well, I think it's because every once in a while I do a British accent that is mind-blowing at the same time it is comical. <laughs> no? I can Nothing? do I, I can do Henry what? Kissinger, but I don't. You know, not not now. It's yeah. Even his wife's out. Anyways, all right. So, ladies and gentlemen, we've got James Haley on the line. James, how are you doing, my friend? I'm terrific, Dustin. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, it is absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, mutual friend connected us. Um, Denton Florian. Uh, he was like, he had mentioned you so much, and I had already read um, one of the Putnam series books. And I was like, hey, man, uh, 
If you got James Haley's number, we'd love to have him on the show. And ta-da, here we are. I loved him. You have no idea what that man went through trying to produce that Sam Houston documentary of his. I mean, that was a labor of love that went year after year after year. And I'm not sure that while he was raising money for it, his kids got the kind of Christmas presents they should have. I mean, he sacrificed a lot to make that show happen. Of course, it won five Emmys. So he got some satisfaction out of that. But uh, yeah, Denton's a terrific guy. He really is. Yeah. And uh, Denton, if you're watching, we love you, man. Yeah. Hi, Denton. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we had him uh, as one of yeah, our we, guest speakers uh, yeah. for our very first history event. Had him and uh, Dr. Harden uh, speak. So we, yeah, we think fondly of, of Denton. Yeah, first time I met him was when we had dinner together. So it was... Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, the night before we, we had everything, uh, had our event put together. So... Dinner with Steve Harden. Steve Harden and uh, and Denton Florian jo and Jody Ginn. Yeah. So, oh, Jody and I have known each other for many, many years. Yeah. Jody seems to know everybody. <laughs> you know, he, he's my go-to go guy anytime I'm talking Texas Rangers with someone or, or general Texas history. I'll yeah. just Actually, you him. Not, no, I wrote a history um, maybe 10 years, 12 years ago about how uh, the United States got their hands on Hawaii. And Jody and I were, were very good friends. And he was in grad school down in San Marcos. And I took him to Hawaii with me as a research assistant, which oh, I'd never wow. done before. I've always done my, my own research. But this was like a reality show. It's like, how many archives can you visit in two weeks? So I would look at the documents that I had time to. And then like a spy, he took pictures of all the rest. And I tell you what, Jody is a tremendous researcher. His instinct for what's important and what I, what I should see and what I didn't need to see was always just golden. Yeah, he's uh, he's good stuff. Yeah, so we he, keep he's, in contact with him quite often. He's bailed me out a few times in some of my political discussions. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So um, as much as we would like to discuss Denton and Jody and Steve, um, we're here to discuss your your works, uh, in particular the Putnam series, of which you've recently put together your fourth installment. Uh, Captain Putnam for the Republic of Texas, which I recently finished and I, I loved it. I, I, I love the books because um, I just love the, the naval stories. And I think I've always liked that even as a kid. So first question that I have. So you recently finished this fourth book. Um, the series feels like an American version of the Jack Aubrey or Hornblower series. So did those two British series, did those play an inspiration in you writing the Putnam series? And was there any motivation to write this series because America didn't have an equivalent maritime adventure series? Yes, they did. And yes, it was. But it wasn't my idea. Uh, Jim Hornfisher, my late agent, uh, was in New York tending his trot line. And he was meeting with this legendary editor at G.P. Putnam's Sons, Nita Taublib. Uh, what are you doing this next year? Anything we can help you with? And she said that they were thinking about doing a tall ship naval history novel series like the Hornblower books or the uh, Master and Commander books. But they were holding back because they weren't really sure that the American Navy was doing anything like between the War of 1812 and the Civil War. And Jim said, wait, hang on. 
I might have somebody. And I was, I think I was in Buffalo. I was giving Jack London lectures at SUNY Fredoni because I'd written a biography of Jack London. And I got home from the college to my bed and breakfast one evening and there was an email from Hornfisher saying, call me opportunity knocks. And so I, I called him and he told me, can, can you come up with a proposal for an American tall ship naval series? Well, you know, opportunity doesn't knock very often. So I grabbed him by the belt and yanked him inside. And two days later, I sent them bullet point outline for six different novels, uh, interlocking characters, but sequential. You know, we start with midshipmen and then their lieutenants and, and so on. You know, the, uh, the Hornblower books and the Master and Commander books were never meant to be series. They just kind of grew like Topsy, which is why they're, you know, a mess of prequels and sequels. And so we start with, uh, you know, the, these two buddies become, become buddies uh, during the Barbary Pirate War. Uh, Bliven Putnam is from Connecticut. Sam Bandy is from South Carolina. And some of my readers guessed instantly where this series is going. It just made me laugh. Um, so they're uh, midshipmen and, and become lieutenants in the Barbary Pirate War. The second book is in the War of 1812. The third book um, is with the missionaries in Hawaii in the early 1820s. Now, Sam has gone broke in South Carolina, as many people did in the Panic of 1819. So he came to Texas with Stephen F. Austin in book three. And I was getting emailed from people saying, I'll bet your fourth book is going to be in Texas, isn't it? <laughs> and it was. So anyway, I, I did this outline and Nita read it. And she said, really? Send me his books. And I'd done two historical novels, one in British East Africa, 1890s, one in the American West. And they're kind of artsy and kind of fartsy, you know? And Nita, I mean, she edited Danielle Steele. You know, she's edited Dean Koontz and they are not artsy fartsy. So I thought my goose was cooked, but she liked him. And uh, she called me up and we had a, a wonderful talk. And I said, well, you know, I'm a pretty good writer. I've got all these awards on my wall, but I've never done a bestseller and that's what you do. So, uh, and I put on my very best Texas accent and I said, whatever you tell me to do, I'm gonna do it. And she said, excellent. <laughs> So that's, that's how that got started. So yeah, they are deliberately um, sort of modeled on uh, the concept of the Hornblower books and the Jack Aubrey books, but, but very American. It was kind of funny. Um, uh, I didn't, I read enough of those books to get an idea of what people expect, but I didn't read all that much because I didn't want to sound like them. So I just went off and I did my research and I did my method. And one of the resources that I used was an 1818 or 1820 uh, gunnery manual. It's called the Exercise of the Great Guns. Just movement by command, exactly how you fire those, those big muzzle loaders. I thought, this is great. I've got to do this scene. And so I did this three-page scene on the Constitution of Exercising the Guns. Come to find, Aubrey read the same thing, and he wrote the same scene in... in uh, um, uh, um, was it Master and Commander? The first, the first of his books. So it's like, oh, Haley cribbed a scene from Aubrey. No, we just read the same source. Now, with the Putnam series, there's so much detail when it comes to shipping, uh, like captaining a ship of the line. Mm -hmm. Did did this come from like your research because you were putting this Putnam series together, or is this just a personal history of knowledge of captaining a ship and, and ships in general? 
Um, well, I've always had a nautical interest, but once I signed the deal with Putnam, uh, I think I read Sailing Ship, um, oh gosh, everything about them for maybe a year and a half before I ever wrote a word. Um, so yeah, I've got, I've got a shelf about as long as the one behind you there of, of uh, seamanship and naval architecture and um, history, biographies, all that, all that stuff. So uh, it, was, it was a pretty deep study and pretty quick uh, because I knew it was going to be a series and I didn't want them to suck. <laughs> right. So yeah, it was a lot of research. Well, they definitely don't suck. That's for sure. No, they do. They sure don't. They sure don't. Now, what, one of your books is about the uh, the uh, Republic of Texas. Now, you know, when you think of uh, the Texas Revolution, you know, you think of the Alamo, San Jacinto. Uh, you really don't think much about you know the events that occurred in the Gulf of Mexico. So, um, you know, can you tell our listeners some of the events that took place during the uh, in the Gulf during the uh, Texas Revolution? Well, of course, we think of, of Santa Ana uh, marching overland to attack the Alamo, but we forget that there was a, a whole second army that landed at Copano, and they were being supplied uh, from the coast. And there were, a, they had a couple of cruisers, and we had, I think, a, some, some little pop gun vessel that, that was not much. Now, the, what happened in the Gulf was important, and Sam Houston said, you know, we have to look to a Navy for essential aid. And he was the one who ordered the first four ships. But it was not like, you know, Queen Elizabeth going out to meet the Spanish Armada. In fact, what happened on the Gulf, you would probably do better to think of uh, Henry David Thoreau on his knees watching the ants have a battle. You know, there was not a lot of ships involved. They did not have a lot of guns. Now they did use privateers uh, to protect all that shipping. Um, and so that it sort of my action scenes kind of focus in on that as as you read, but it was not, you know, uh, uh, huge broadsides across deep water because the the big navies weren't involved. Now, if you happen to get killed out there, that's small comfort. You know, it was still just as desperate and and just as noisy. But uh, no, the, the large navies were not were not involved. Well, you know, you know, Dustin and I, we were sitting and talking about, you know, the, the skill of your writing in these books and, and your knowledge. Um, you know, I know we we were talking once about the uh, Stephen Crane who wrote the, um, the, the Red Badge of Courage, uh, only to find out that he, he didn't serve in combat. Now, you know, with your books, um, does, uh, does your experience as a historian, is it similar to Steve Crane's? Because obviously you didn't. You weren't in any combat in the early uh, 19th century, but... Uh... <laughs> well, you know, it, it kind of reminds me of um, uh, Dustin Hoffman uh, being in a movie with uh, Olivier. And Olivier, what was it Marathon Man where Olivier is the evil dentist and he's going to torture him with a drill and so on? Well, Dustin Hoffman was a dedicated method actor and Olivier was not. He just laughed at the whole concept. And Dustin Hoffman was just amazed at how how steely and awful his character was he's like how how do you do that without you know the method and he said my boy it's called acting you know i you write novels you live in your imagination and um, when i wrote the jack london biography i had one chapter that just flummoxed me i put it up and that was when he's in the yukon because i've never been to alaska 
And if I'd gone another week, they would have had to push the book into the next season. Hornfisher was yelling at me, you've got to write this chapter. And so I just sat down and I did it. And the editor said she had to put a sweater on while she read it. <laughs> so yeah. um, it's called art, I guess. There you well, go. Yeah. Yeah, answers the question, you know. But we're still impressed by what we're reading. So yeah, it's almost yeah. it, it it feels yeah, it's it's it is um just just reading it, you you get a sense of being on on the ocean. Um well, I so, have been on in, in fact um I, I think I must have been a sailor in a previous life or something. I never get seasick. Um, in fact, I was in Santa Barbara once and I went out on a hundred foot uh, tourist boat to go whale watching. And we were plowing into these 10 foot swells and all the tourists were running into the head to throw up. And I was running out to the bow with my binoculars going, where are they, where are they? Uh, and it was just high adventure uh, to me. The thing about the historical research when you employ it in fiction, and that's the difference between the research and the art, is um, if you come across a really cool character who's not that important to the history, you can elevate that character into a major character in the book where you couldn't in the history. Or if there's a really cool place that you just, that would add so much to a story. Well, it's the story that comes first. Just like uh, in Shores of Tripoli, after the uh, uh, Marines have their battle at Derna, you know, shores of Tripoli, blah, blah, blah. Um, well, there's a city one day's ride west of, of Derna uh, called Cyrene. It's the ruins of an ancient Roman city. Well, my character, Blivin Putnam, is kind of like me. He's a history geek. So when the Navy's in Pompeii, this is just the time that they're starting to dig up Pompeii and he's desperate to get them. Well, no, we have to go fight a war. And so they get to Egypt and you know, the, they came across the desert from Alexandria. They did not, it was not a, an amphibious assault. And so they're, they're riding along and he knows that out there to the south somewhere is the oasis of Siwa where Alexander the Great was made a god. But we don't have time for that. We've got to go fight a battle. Well, after the fight at Derna, um, Hamet Pasha, who was actually one of the, a, a real historical character uh, said, well, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll satisfy. So he takes him a day's ride west to uh, Cyrene. Now, in the Bible, James of Cyrene in the Bible is from there. It, it's vast Roman ruins. Well, the cool thing about Cyrene is that in the ancient times, they had one product that made their economy. And it was a, a kind of an onion called Silphium. And it was believed to be, uh, if you were a guy, it was an aphrodisiac. And if you were a woman, it was an abortifacient. So you could have all the fun you wanted and nobody would get pregnant. So, um, the Egyptians bought it, Phoenicians bought it, Greeks bought it. Uh, in Rome, it was worth its weight in silver. In fact, the Cyrenian coins uh, have an onion on them, or a, a sulfium bulb. Of course, the place dried up and blew away because they picked it all, it went extinct. Well, I mean, when I'm reading them, I mean, I don't think about eating onions, maybe sucking on a lime, but uh, definitely <laughs> not. Is that okay to say that? Is that wrong? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think so. Well, I don't know who. Well, never I think mind. You're in the clear, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I'm in the, the clear. The surgeon on the Constitution, Edward Cutbush, that was actually his name. He was um, a highly influential doctor in his day. He wrote a, a big medical treatise on uh, military medicine that was used for decades and decades. And I just, 
in the second book, I, he was such a good character. I needed him to stay on the ship, even though in, in real life, he went to run the, the hospital at the Philadelphia Navy Yard. So there are places where the novelist had to pull rank over the historian and say, I need this for the story uh, and depart from the history. Because you know, there's all kinds of ways to write historical fiction. You can tell a story and put costumes on people. That'll get you to Braveheart. You know, interesting movie, not much in there ever really happened. Right. Um, or you can go overboard the other way and, and maybe invent some dialogue for actual events. And that's not very interesting. Um, but what we did, and we, we had meetings about this, uh, we decided to tell a good story, but steer the, that story just as close to actual events as a good story will bear. And I did it because I'm really kind of a frustrated history teacher. And the ignorance of everybody out there about history now is just appalling. I mean, the American public, uh, more than half of them do not know what country is the only one who've ever dropped an atomic bomb in war. More than half the people out there don't know it was us. Uh, and it's, it's just- it's almost, it's almost not surprising. Well, it, 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 and it's not. You're right. Um, now that's historic. Half half the people in the country cannot even read above a ninth grade level. That's why newspaper editors say uh, you should write your stories at eighth grade level so that people can read them. You know, um, it, it's just appalling, and I think that's one reason why we're in such a uh, a terrible um, uh, cultural divide right now. Is just ambient, ignorance, apathy, lack of curiosity. Um, and so I can, I, I switch from doing straight up history to doing fiction because people don't wanna be taught, they wanna be entertained. Okay, I'll entertain you, but by the time you read this book, by golly, you're gonna know about the Barbary War or the War of 1812 or the Texas Revolution. So that was sort of <coughs> my personal ax to grind in, in doing the books. I'm glad you don't think they suck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, no. And they're, they're a lot of fun to read, but it's also from the historical perspective, because what you've, you sort of demonstrated my, my next question is there's so much topical information in your books and you, you bring a lot of surrounding issues or surrounding things like the the sirene you know and the aphrodisiac and all of that but you pull all of this together through the characters and i think that opens up for a sort of a broad way of presenting one the story but two presenting history and ways to think about it and just as an illustration your your latest book you're able to bring in um, a lot of controversial issues and tackle those sort of like like slavery, why the Texians were even fighting the Texas Revolution, and uh, President Andrew Jackson. Uh, so you're able to, through your characters, and I find this really, um, like really a positive for readers who may not know much about history, which as we've discussed is, is a lot of people. You give opposing views through Putnam. And so... Is providing that perspective on the issues of the time one of the secondary goals, if not the primary goals of the books of, hey, 
slavery was going on or Texans were needing to fight this war or here's Andrew Jackson, a very, very controversial figure. And here are the ways that were people thought about these issues. That's such a good question. Absolutely, it was a primary motivator for me. Um, in fact, when uh, the fourth book came out, I did uh, a Zoom interview uh, with the um, uh, proprietors and patrons of a feminist bookstore in Houston. Wonderful people, wonderful bookstore, Blue Willow Books. And I was terrified because, you know, in book four, uh, Sam is having a relationship and living uh, with Dicey, uh, who had been a slave. And of course, in modern parlance, any such relationship is rape, full stop. Uh, the trouble is that in history, that wasn't always true. I mean, look at uh, the Chief Justice of the Republic's Supreme Court, uh, John Hemphill, had two children with Sabina, whom he sent to Wilberforce University in Ohio and left everything to them. You know, you did have mixed race families even in that time. Well, I was afraid, really afraid of, of blowback uh, of this relationship between Sam and Dicey. And I talked about it with my editor and she said, no, you should be fine because you gave her, gave Dicey her agency. This was her doing. In fact, uh, when uh, uh, Captain Putnam asked her if she thinks this is you know, really proper for her to be in this relationship, she says, where did you find such a high horse to sit on? You know, look around you, Captain Putnam. This is just as good as this life will ever get for me. You know, he can't free me because it's not, uh, he can't marry me because it's not legal. He can't free me because the slave catchers will get me and sell me to somebody else. You know, I've got it pretty good here. So you just kind of settle down and leave us alone. Uh, but because I gave Dicey her choice of what to do, um, I, I think she wound up being the bookstore people's favorite character in the book. As indeed, she's, she's one of my very favorite characters. Right. I love Dicey. Oh, by the way, that's another thing that, uh, um, talk about something to bring in. My downstairs neighbor came up for tea one, and once and he gave me the best darn cup of tea I've ever had. And I said, what is this? And he said, it's Texas Yopon. And I had no idea that all that thickety yopon that grows out in the creek bottoms, you can make tea out of it and it's excellent. So uh, tea has been kind of a, a minor motif through all four books. Uh, and so I got to do a whole riff on the slaves making this really good tea out of bushes out in the creek. Uh, and the white people would just have a fit if they knew we were having better tea than they do. Yeah, that's um, in the book, and I, it's something I didn't write down as one of my questions, but that you sold the tea so well in this latest book. Um, is it, can you, can you purchase it somewhere or, or what? Oh, yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, one of the producers at Texas History Films has a Yopan Tea Company. You can get it uh, Whole Foods or uh, here in Austin at Wheatsville Co-op. Uh, you can get it in bags. You can get it loose leaf. Uh, or I've got, now I've got a yapon bush growing on, on my balcony. You just, you know, toast the leaves and grind them up. It's that easy. Now, don't use the berries. The berries will make you really sick. In fact, the Latin name for it is Ilex vomitoria. Oh. Uh, <laughs> but the leaves are wonderful. You know, I, I like the idea of, um, of, of, introducing the public to events uh, in our history 
using fictional history. Um, you know, I, I look at movies like Titanic, the movie Titanic, um, Saving Private Ryan, and, then, and then a whole lot of other movies. So, um, and I do hope that your books end up becoming movies also, because, uh, yeah, Barbary Pirates, how many people even know about that one? But what I was going to ask you is that how do you compare, you know, writing uh, uh, historical fiction versus writing history itself? Did you, was it more fun for you? Did you find it more enjoyable? Was it easier? Or the pressures of making sure everything right? You know, because we mentioned Braveheart, and we know Braveheart, you know, a lot of things on there, that from yeah. the kilts to uh, who the real father of Edward III, uh, among other things. But, uh, I mean, what, I'm, what, did you have more fun with it? Fictional history versus history itself? Or? Yeah. Um, writing historical fiction is about six times harder because you have to know the whole life, the everything. My characters can't say, okay, until 1840. Um, in fact, the second book, uh, it's New England, it's autumn. Oh, I want um, dinner, pumpkin pie. That's a good way to start it. So I'm writing this scene. And I thought, wait a minute, how do I know they had pumpkin pie? So you research. Well, they had pumpkin pie, but it wasn't our pumpkin pie. Uh, up until right about that time, uh, pumpkin pie was a woman would make a custard of, you know, eggs, cream, sugar, and she would pour it inside a hollow pumpkin and cook the whole pumpkin. And then they would slice that up and that was pumpkin pie. They didn't have the custard that we have until about 1810, 1815, somewhere in there as I discovered. So I not only got to have my pumpkin pie, I got to do a whole riff on the change and how Bliven's father really didn't like this change. He wanted the old real pumpkin pie or pencils. Um, you know, they're, uh, he's on, on the ship and he's uh, logging down new crew members with a pencil. Wait a minute, did they have pencils? How do I know they had pencils? Well, it turned out that the first American pencil manufacturer was in New England in 1812. So I not only got to have a pencil, I got to do a whole riff on this new invention. That's one thing I've discovered is that if I get stuck in a story, if I'll just look closer at the history, it'll tell me what to do. Have you seen the Disney movie, Johnny Tremaine, about the uh, Revolutionary War? Uh, it shows uh, Paul Revere with a uh, kind of a magic marker. <laughs> 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 If you ever, if you ever maybe, maybe do a spit it. take. Yeah, if you ever watch it, you know, it's like, I'm like, wait a minute, that I don't think they had those back then. What is that a sharpie? Yeah, I know. Like, yeah. Oh so. man, come on, do your research. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what I I like about books like yours, the historical fiction, is that they can go out of the scope of exactly where they are and and give you information that you weren't expecting. That's what. Um, that's what I enjoy. I mean, I love the, the narrative of where the story is going from A to Z, but how you're able to bring in all of these other, did you know about this? Um, or like the tea, like something like I, I had no idea. These are, these are things that reading the book, it's so, it's historical fiction. And so whoever's reading it needs to go into it, understanding it's fiction. But there's so much historical fact in these books that people can go back to it and be at least like, okay, that's interesting. I'm going to go and research that 
a little more and see how that lines up with actual history. So, yeah, now I don't write these books just out of the endless wealth of my own knowledge. I mean, I'm discovering this stuff as I, as I write it. Uh, and in, in the beginning of book four, uh, of course, it starts in 1834 and, and is in the Caribbean. Well, slavery is a big uh, motif through all the books uh, because the series will end up in the Civil War. But we, we forget that the British Empire did not outlaw slavery until the summer of 1834. That was a brand new thing for them. And uh, they, had, they were very worried, well, what's going to happen down in Jamaica if we free all these people? And they had the example of what happened in Haiti, uh, where the, the former French masters were just massacred, just massacred. And then they turned, the slaves turned on each other, you know, native speaker against French speaker, light skin against dark skin. It was just a bloodbath. Um, and that gave some, some semblance of understanding to why planters in the American South so feared a slave rebellion. You know, that, that fear did not come out of nowhere. Um, so yeah, the more I would research a story, the art is how does this apply to the historical um, uh, fabric that I'm weaving? What was, what was that slave revolt, 1820 uh, in Virginia? I forgot the guy's name. Uh, Nat Turner? Nat Turner, yeah, that's the one, yeah. okay. Do you yeah, know, James, compared to Haiti, you, uh, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. No, not even, yeah, not even close. You in know, fact, my, my, um, the editor on that book, uh, made me tone down anything about what to do with Haiti because she did not want American readers knowing that slaves could actually, actually did that to each other. Um, and so that was you know, part of the modern era now that I'm, I have to combat uh, in trying to get a story told is, oh, we don't, we don't want, no, uh, people don't need to know that. Well, you know, to me, history, the more you know, history is your personal inoculation against being fed horse manure. You know, the, everything that you believe about everything in the world that's important, uh, what's right, what's wrong, what's moral or immoral, or how should you live, vote, worship, raise your children, Everything you believe filters like coffee through what you understand about history or not. And when you've got a whole population that doesn't know bean dip about history, you get people who are easily led over a cliff. Or easily offended. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and now we're in an age when the far left is really, has really overtaken the far right and censoring people, which I never thought I would live to see. But here it is. It's all just cyclical and all just goes in a, in a circle. It's, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a bad time, uh, for that. My, unfortunately, my last question, you sort of just answered. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, so I recently wrote a, re a review, uh, on your book for the Epic Times. should be probably coming out this coming week. Oh, bless your and, heart. Thank you. Yeah. I speculate at the end um, that there will be a fifth installment, if not a sixth installment. And you mentioned that it will end in the civil war. Um, so that sort of answers my question, but is your next, are you working on your next installment? And is the next installment, the Mexican American war, 
or is it the Civil War? Is it somewhere in between? I am so glad you asked that, Dustin, because um, when Nita and I were thinking about this way back in 2014, uh, she instantly saw once I got her going, oh, well, he could he could open Japan with Perry in the 1850s. He could be in the Opium War in China in 1842. He could be in, in the Caribbean fighting pirates in 1818. Well, I don't know how long I'm gonna live, you know? <laughs> And so um, I was on a book tour, which was very surprising because you don't really get book tours anymore. But I was in, uh, when uh, Shore, uh, Shores of Tripoli came out, I was in this waterfront uh, bar in uh, the throbbing metropolis of Palkatuck, Connecticut. It's right on the border of Rhode Island. Uh, two, two little towns right next to each other, but they both have a bookstore. So I'm in this brew pub with a tall boy in one hand and my notes in the other hand, and there's all these waterfront people out there and they know this history already. And they're like, now in your book, you said this happened, but no, this is what really happened. And yeah, but for the story I needed there. And there is an older lady out there who raised her hand and she said, well, now, uh, how is this, how long is this series gonna go? I wanna know how it ends and I'm getting on up there. So we, uh, we had a meeting and we decided, okay, five or six, and we will go from beginning to end. And then maybe I can go back and fill in the Mexican-American War, uh, what happened uh, in, uh, in California, or the Opium War in 1842. Or uh, one of the things I really wanted to do was uh, chasing down the uh, Atlantic slave trade, the, the Atlantic squadron chasing down slavers in the 1850s, because a lot of people don't know that any captains who wanted to be good at that had to, to operate around the secretary of the Navy who was a slaveholder. And he would station the fleet in places where they would never be a slave ship to catch. Wow, wow, I didn't know that. What about a prequel? Yeah, like the, the, uh... the fifth one will be uh, the Civil War. That'll be the, that'll be the windup, no spoilers. Uh, and then I will go back and start filling in. Uh, the stories that I didn't get to to write. I love your dog, by the way. I was going to say, ladies and gentlemen, Madison has made her triumphant <laughs> arrival. She <laughs> has. Did you ever watch or did you ever read uh, Family Circus, the the comic strip? Oh, yes. And they would always do like the kid going to the park and it's like all those dots everywhere to like show you where all they went just to get from like A to B. That's what she's done. She has gone all yeah. through this <laughs> this office doing the army crawl, trying to stay down. <laughs> she's such you're, a You're nut. too young to remember Family Circus. I, hey, I remember Family Circus. I appreciate Dennis, that, Dennis that, that you do believe that I am too young. I, I, I can't thank you enough for that. Yeah. So um, I was going to ask, what about a prequel? Uh, you know, we have the quasi-war with France, got the Revolutionary War, you know, and... Well, you know, there are only 14 during the Barbary Pirate War, so that might be that might be difficult. Now, that by the way, that is one concession to modern sensibilities that I made because midshipmen commonly were 11 or 12, not 14. Uh, in fact, some of there were uh, full lieutenants who were only 15 at that time, but nobody today would believe that. So I had Levin and Sam enter the Navy as midshipmen when they were 14. Well, why don't you uh, do like a father or uncle Anakin uh, Putnam, you know, and <laughs> go She's forward. So stupid. <laughs> well, I tell you what, these characters are still totally fresh to me. 
Um, I, I would love to do, you know, I, I could do one of these a year from now until I, I go somewhere. And by the way, I just um, accepted a job. Um, I've been in Austin over 40 years, but um, the guy that I used to work for at the state capitol is now the manager of a guest ranch in the Colorado Rockies. And um, it, he's taken it nonprofit and they do, it, it's called the Pines Ranch. They provide um, free rest retreats for exhausted COVID nurses and first responders. And they're doing wonderful work. And when I visited him, he said, what would it take to get you up here? And I said, employment for life and no rent. He said, cool. <laughs> so Hello. I'm packing, yeah. as you can see. <laughs> and when I get up there, I will be doing nature walks and campfire talks and leading history tours. But most of my time, I just get to put my feet up and write my books and not worry about rent. So there will be more Putnam's coming out of that, I guarantee you. That, uh, yeah, that sounds like the life worth yeah. living right there. Well, James, I tell you what, it's been fantastic. Uh, having you on to discuss your new books, Madison has uh, been very excited as well. Uh, well, I tell you, you what, so one of the best things about the ranch is the head of security, who is a wolf that lives under the porch. Wow. wow. Okay. <laughs> Fortunately, he loves people. Um, actually, I think he's like a wolf Malamute cross. But um, yeah, totally untrained. But when one of the guests goes up, it's uh, right at the San Isabel National Forest. So when one of the guests crosses the fence and goes for a hike in the wilderness, put, 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 he goes too, and he protects people because we're part of we're his pack. Okay, well, it, it, luckily it's luckily it's not uh, just the the bones of Jack London. So. <laughs> no, although uh, uh, he has taken on bears before. Oh yeah, well, I bet. that's freaking awesome. Yeah. Well, if you do many prequels, I can make a suggestion for a name of one of the, your books called <laughs> "The War of Putnam's Ear." I think uh, no one's thought of that one. Or... <laughs> oh, you've been waiting for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's like, come on, <laughs> everybody, shut up. Let me get this. It's in my there. turn to talk. <laughs> Maybe change it up a bit. His nose or something. I don't know. Beautiful. Well, James, thank you again so much for, for being on the show. This has been a lot of fun for us. It's been a great pleasure for me, let me tell you. So, what'd you think? I loved it. Delightful in, fellow. In, <laughs> you like that? Oh, <laughs> wow. Brought in the Allenby. I like it. You know, I, I'm going to I'm gonna try to remember that. that you're undisciplined, you're on something... Speak seven languages. Are you on? Are you talking about T. E. Lawrence? Expert in yes, when he was doing the uh, yeah. And then mm -hmm. there's a funny scene where someone jumps, like when he captures uh, Akaba. You can see the legs behind, but you don't see the guy's face. Fantastic, outstanding, sir. <laughs> oh wow, you're really you're really diving all in on that British accent yeah. now. Well, let's talk about yeah, know. exactly. But I was just impressed. Uh, speaking of impressed. Uh, I really love that conversation with James Haley. A uh, lot of fun. Yeah, it is. A lot of fun to talk about how how to how to put together his historical fiction novels. You've picked some some really great winners. Let me tell you, this Thank you. this guy was. Uh, this is uh, you know when we go to Austin. Now I just need to pick one more to we fill should, in that chair. We should. <laughs> you know we should uh, go drink a beer together. Just. Just, me, not yeah, the, this exactly, guy. just one of us. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's a lot of fun, ladies and gentlemen. 
honestly, uh, I, I can say I've read two of the four books. I read the first one and I've read this uh, most recent one and they are a lot of fun to read. I, it's, it is, I mean, you're, you're, you're on the ocean, you're having these sea battles, you're on these old ships of the tips of the lines, as he called them, the, t- the tall ships. Mm-hmm. It's just, it takes you away. And here's the thing, Christmas is coming up and I'm not, you know, whatever. Christmas is coming up. This would be great for if you've got teenagers or if you've got, you know, a husband or a dad who likes naval history or maritime stories. This is a great buy. I mean, yeah. I, I would I would definitely recommend getting this stuff for for your kids. Uh, I would I would go teens. Uh, and and it's about an American. You know, you, know, you don't have yeah. to, you know, if you're Irish or something and you don't want to read about a British guy, you know, there you go. Exactly. Or, you know. Or Hornblower or some of those other guys. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and, you know, and, and they're, they're good books. And I mentioned this to him about Stephen Crane. Um, the, uh, the Red Badge of Courage, you know, people thought this guy must have been in combat in uh, the Civil War, but, uh, but he wasn't. And, but mm-hmm. he, his, the way he depicted the battle scenes was very, yeah. um, very accurate. So, and it's the same thing with this. Now, judging by the fact that we were talking to him, I assumed he was not around for any of these uh, naval engagements. I would assume so, so, yeah, unless yeah. he's a Highlander, which that's, you know, Scottish thing for you. But, exactly. But, yeah, uh, his books, you, you feel like you're there. I, I mean, think you know, the like, possibilities yeah. are endless. He did yeah. say, in my former life, yeah. I think that I was, you know, yeah. in the Navy or something. And, and I, lines, so. I did suck on a few limes as I was reading those, uh, those books. Well, you got to fight the scurvy. Yeah, it's, so. yeah. Yeah, you don't. Yeah, terrible. And speaking of, he actually mentions that in the in the first book. All right, so ladies and gentlemen, uh, book and movie recommendations. All right, so book recommendation. I think it is synonymous and anonymous. And um, what is it when everybody's in favor of one particular thing? Consensus type of thing? Yeah, I know that's what we're going for. Um, it was unanimous. That's what was I was it, going uh, for. Settled. It's you know, like they say, it's settled science. Yeah, you know? yeah, and follow the science. And you Anyways. don't have to wear a mask to, to read these. <laughs> oh, God, I could go on. Um, so there are four books, and I'm just telling you, Go yep. check these out. James Haley. I mean, also... It'll be a fifth one, too, he was saying. Yeah, he was saying that. Yeah. So I don't know if it's going to be Mexican-American War, Civil War, or what, but it's going to be good, I can almost guarantee. I think so. he does need to do a prequel, but that's just me. A prequel? Yeah. Like, like Rogue One. Like Rogue Ruben... One was a fantastic movie in the Star Wars series, and you know you could you know do one, the uh, quasi-war with France. Or... Yeah, but may I... Yeah, go ahead. Everybody dies in Rogue One. So, anyways, so his prequel would wipe out the main character. So, all right. Well, so, all right. My movie recommendation. Hold on. I want you to do your movie recommendation so people will know exactly why I'm doing this movie recommendation. Um. Okay. I don't even remember what you're recommending, but I'll do you mine. The, you, no. Okay. The, remember the post about the the robots and the science and all that. Yeah. That's why. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Got it. Which, which, you know, Battlestar Galactica I'm has... I'm glad I'm reminding ba- you Battle of the Star, reason why you, know, you wanted to do these movies. Battlestar Galactica, uh, which is one of the movies. Uh, actually, okay, Battle, the Battlestar Galactica miniseries, uh, the one that came out in the 2000s with Edward James Olmos, who was in... Here's, American Graffiti. Huh? 
Go ahead. No, no. Okay, all right. I, I'm going to pick a series of movies, and there's a reason for it. They all kind of have a common theme. Uh, Terminator, Jurassic Park, Screamers, Peter Weller. And it's a kind of an unknown movie. It's actually yeah, pretty and good. and so is Peter Weller. Go ahead. Uh, Robocop, come on. Um, yeah. Okay, so. He had a mask the, on the whole time. And then, and then uh, the Battlestar, did I mention Battlestar Galactica already? Yeah, you went through Battlestar like Galactica, whole... Terminator, Screamers, and Jurassic Park. Okay, now what's the theme on those? Playing God, you know, uh, self-replicating. The reason why I'm doing that is because the whole Xenobot thing, you know, I'm reading about Xenobots. Mm-hmm. I mean, even Elon Musk was like, don't do it. And, you know, we, we've had warnings in literature. And, you know, even logically speaking, if, yeah. if, a, if AI does come into existence and they realize, you know, because humans are flawed, yeah. you know, and a machine's going to think, you know, we need to get rid of... Uh, people and you know and here recently i sent you that uh or you saw that that i I was reading about and yeah you posted something but i've been reading about the xenobots and i'm like going this is nuts they're they're able to study the science you know science i'm not anti-science but the but the audacity of of um, arrogance i'm anti-mad scientists the arrogance of fauci saying you know if you attack me you attack science um Science created the Africanized killer bees, and that's a true story. Yeah, you know, and you know they invented a bunch of horrible things. So mm-hmm. it's not like you know science is great, but science can when it's misused. And I think that this is a misuse of oh, of absolutely, science. and which leads me to my movie recommendation, Blade Runner. You won't know the difference between regular people and replicants. Uh, with what I recently saw, actually, I think it was today that I that I posted that you've got robots that are capable of reproducing like regular human beings. I mean, come on. We're going right into like Ridley Scott's world, mm-hmm. which is freaking jacked up. So anyways, not to put your uh, week on a, you know, a downward spiral, yeah. but... Uh, we're all going to die. You know, okay, the bad coronavirus, and they checked to see in Wuhan, they checked to see if, you know, if the, you could get the bad coronavirus and it can hit a human being. Yeah. You know, they've got viruses there that have a 50% mortality. Correct. Yeah. Playing God. Or, bad or idea. Or like playing Satan. It's just like, yeah, yeah bad idea. Wipe out bad all idea. Of civilization. Yeah. So, all right, ladies and gentlemen, that brings our show to an end next week. Uh, we've got a very special guest. It's our final episode of the season. Joel Berry of the Babylon Bee. They have recently come out with their new book, The Babylon Bee Guide to Wokeness. It's are you joking? Are you being serious? We already we already did that. We did that last week. With did the, we? Is this satire? Is this satire? I need you to remember the jokes. You know, that you've already it done. was funny then. I think it's funny now. You don't like my jokes, do you? It's not so much your jokes that I don't like. It's your entire persona. You know, I had this discussion with a friend of mine. You remember that party that I was at where they, you know... Where they didn't like you? They didn't like me? Yeah. I can't understand why, but... Uh, I can name I, I made a joke. I made a joke about uh, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. And it, it was supposed to be, you know, yeah. a typical misogynistic joke. Uh-huh. And instead, they took it as being right. racist. I'm like, are you kidding me? It's, uh, <laughs> Didn't yeah. even cross. Hey, come on, this come is on, misogynistic. I'm, I'm trying to be misogynistic here. You totally and, and, missed it. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was like, What's hey, sad is think? that, you know, that's a joke that more or less tells itself. Those two. Unbelievable. Yeah. All right. Where can people find us and hang out? 
more than what they do now. Oh, yeah. Not at uh, parties in Houston, I'll tell you that much, because they're not going to invite me ever again. But they, you know, you can find us. Unless on... you want to hang out with somebody <laughs> with jokes who does, that don't land. Yeah. All right. So let's see. Uh, like us on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Follow us on Instagram. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Now, if we get shadow banned or banned altogether, which could inevitably inevitably happen. I see it's transferring over to you. Yeah. Um, we do have our very own website, www.thesonsofhistory.com. That's right. And we'll be there. All right, that's it, right? Yeah. That's it. You know, I am going to start trying I to do some... I hope we get to... Oh, you I know... I hope we get to next week's episode mm-hmm. before the replicants actually do come and kill us. It's going to suck. Xenobots. If we're in the middle of, like, the it, third it, season and then all of a sudden it, tap on the door and it's... it's... My fear of, of xenobots, is that a form of xenophobia? Ooh. You know? Is that wrong? Is that... Anyway, oh, I do want to mention um, that I'm doing, uh, hopefully, if I don't fail, I should... Hopefully tomorrow nothing happens. You know, I'm gonna do a you special do on on the Pearl Harbor attack. Now this isn't going to be just about what happened at Pearl Harbor. It's going to be why it happened, mm-hmm. why it was such a big deal, why it really pissed off America more than anything else, and what the aftermath was, and what else was going on because it wasn't just Pearl Harbor that the Japanese were attacking. So, That's right. and maybe hopefully, hopefully we can learn from it because there was an important lesson to be learned from why it happened it's the 80th anniversary mm-hmm. of the pearl harbor attack and i reached out to tracy hunter who does the world war ii documentaries and she asked are you guys going to be in pearl harbor meaning she'll be there and she was like i'll send you guys some photos i'm like dang wish we could go there but now we're not able to make it so i was there 40 years ago you know all right, so ladies and gentlemen, that is it. We will forty years ago. Yeah, I was wow. there forty years ago uh, on the. 40th I think it was it was December of uh, of eighty one. All right, well, I think or was, no, 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 it was I, December nineteen eighty. December nineteen eighty that we were there. Forty one years ago. Forty one years ago. Yeah, right. missed it by a year. Missed it by one year. All right, yeah. see you later, everyone.